0: Tonight on Farage, 12,500 people have come across the English Channel in little boats so far this year. Not a single one has been deported. I'll be asking, has the Home Secretary Priti Patel failed? We'll look at the 40,000 care home staff who do not want to get the jab. What's to become of them? What are care homes to do? And I'll be joined by the grand dame of pantomime, Christopher Biggins, on Talking Pints. Well, last night we spoke to Migration Watch and we learned that the annual cost for looking after people who've come into this country and are trying to claim asylum had risen by 42% over the course of the last two years. It's now 1.42 billion every single year. And is it any wonder with 12,500 people so far this year that have crossed the English Channel, the numbers keep going up and up. Now, when I first started looking at this early in 2020, it seemed to me that the numbers coming would rise massively. And the main reason was that deportations of those who came across the channel, whose claims for asylum failed, that deportations were only about 5%. It seemed to me you might as well put a sign on the White Cliffs of Dover saying, everybody welcome, doesn't matter who you are, and you won't be deported. And, of course, that's been a boom to the criminal gangs who've made millions and millions out of trafficking people over the English Channel. But we learn overnight that deportations of those who come to Britain illegally, because their claims have failed, those deportations were running at 15,000 people a year back in 2012. The numbers have gone down and down and down. And now, with the English Channel this year, of the 12,500 people who have crossed the Channel, not a single one has been returned to France or anywhere else. Now, in mitigation, I could say that the French have refused to sign a returns treaty with us, Uh, but I would also point out that as we're still part of the European Convention on Human Rights, deporting people is difficult because we face an endless series of court cases. Either way, when you have a Home Secretary who, since August 2019, has made repeated speeches in public, saying she will stop the cross-channel flow of people. Tonight, I have to ask the question, has Priti Patel failed? I want your views on gbviews at gbnews.uk, but I'm also running tonight, for the first time on this show, a Twitter poll. The handle is at GB News, so just simply, yes or no, has Priti Patel failed? Well, I certainly think that she has. Now, I did say... There are some mitigating factors. And joining me now, perhaps to help explain some of this, is immigration lawyer Ivan Sampson. Ivan, good evening. Hi, good evening, Nigel. I was making the point a moment ago that deporting people who were shown to have been here illegally was running as high as 15,000 a year back in 2012. Uh, That number has plummeted over the course of the last few years. A lot of it, I think in the wake of the Windrush scandal, the Windrush row. Um, but what is, what is pretty Patel to do now? Because it's pretty clear that large numbers are coming from Afghanistan and we're going to accept large numbers from Afghanistan, but that, that of itself is going to put much more pressure on cross-channel movements, uh, which have been quiet for the last two weeks because of the unseasonal weather. Isn't it completely unacceptable that not a single one of 12,500 people has been deported back to France?
1: Yes, thank you, Nigel. First of all, um, you've got to go back to the 1990s to understand why uh, people are not being deported. Back in the 1990s, the European Union, when we were members, centralised an asylum system, as you know, and you'll be familiar, Nigel, having worked in the European Union, uh, what the Dublin... Convention system, yep. you'll be familiar with that. Yep. Now, uh, under that convention, if you're fingerprinted in a member state of the Refugee Convention, then um, if you're later fingerprinted in another country under the Eurodac system, the old Eurodac system, you can be removed back to the first point uh, where you entered, uh, where you could have claimed asylum. Now we can't do that anymore because we're not members of the European Union. So the only way they can uh, remove people if they're not recognized as genuine refugees. And Priti Patel's premise is this, that if you're not claiming asylum in the first country that you go to, you're not, you, you can't be a genuine refugee because genuine refugees would immediately claim asylum. Unfortunately, the, the statistics don't bear that out because 50% of appeals are allowed by the court where the Home Office deem people not to be genuine refugees. So her, her initial premise is all wrong in any case. Then you have the an unaccompanied children. We cannot remove them. We simply can't do it because we have a duty under the Borders Act to make sure that they're cared for. And we also have a duty under the Children's Act. Doesn't matter if you're a refugee, you have status or not. Every council has a duty under the Children's Act to care for children. And we simply cannot remove them until they're eighteen. The final problem is where to remove them to. If France won't accept them, the only place they can go is back to their home country. Well most of them don't have any travel documents, no passports. Yeah, so I'm afraid pretty patellist.
0: And that of course is quite deliberate, isn't it? And I, I have a sense yes. I have a sense, Ivan. Uh, that within a few weeks, when we do get some better weather and when very big numbers start to cross the channel again, that everyone that comes will say they've come from Afghanistan, uh, which will, of course, compound the problem. But on the Human Rights Act, you know, and that's still... You know, we've got Brexit, but we are still part... Mm of the European Convention on Human Rights. It isn't just those crossing the channel without documents we're struggling to remove. We've even seen plane loads of of, of people who've been convicted of criminal offences in this country. And when we try and deport them, we find there are lawyers doing their best to stop that from happening. And I was amazed to see today that we now have something like 11,000 foreign criminals, people who've committed crimes, some of them very serious in this country, and they're out there now, freely walking the streets of Britain. Isn't it time we
1: re-examined the ECHR? No, it isn't. I don't believe that. Oh, look. Do you know who drafted the ECHR, Nigel? I don't care that it was
0: British people. We had a lot of very misguided British people back then. We, 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 we drafted it. Yeah, I know. We
1: and we got. It. Yeah, I know. And we got. And we joined the European Union. We got lots of things mm. wrong in the past. You and I have had discussions many times on LBC on this this particular point. This is the thing. When you're looking at family life, it's very complex because it's not just the individual you're talking about. You're talking about the extended family. It's what's called composite rights. And so when somebody's gone to prison, has done their time, and has come out, paid their dues to society, and is no longer a risk to society then why should they be separated from their families that's the point and so that's what the courts look at is it proportionate now look i accept there are some people that are they're a risk to this country and quite rightly we should deport them i think that's absolutely right i think you know serious sexual offenses those sorts of offenses we have to draw a red line somewhere where it's unacceptable but the Home Office simply want to remove you for the most erroneous crime, anything which carries more than twelve months' prison sentence. Well, there's an automatic right to deport but, that person. But, but that seems reasonable. I put it to you, that seems reasonable to most people. Well, it would do until you start looking at the complexity of relationships and the effect that it has on the on the other family members. So. I I asked you this question before on LBC. If your daughter was married to a refugee, let's say, who committed uh, several shopliftings and he's been then sent to prison for more than 12 months... Yeah. ..and you've got grandchildren, would you accept your grandchildren to live without their father?
0: Well, I'd be pretty appalled that a son-in-law... Um, who had come into this country? We're talking about the grandchildren, yeah, yeah, not yeah. son Well, I'm saying this—that's the complexity. But, but we, yeah. I understand this, that I understand that it's complexity. But I would just argue this: we open our arms up very generously to people from all around the world, and if they abuse yeah. that trust, I don't think they should be here. But finally, Ivan, back on the English Channel, is there anything that Pretty Patel can do to reverse the tide?
1: She can. What she needs to do is to enter into a treaty and have a bucket full of load of cash because the only thing the french will understand is we pay for it and we're going to have to enter into an international treaty with the eu similar to the dublin convention so i'm afraid they've got us over a barrel now because they're so upset about us leaving Brex uh, leaving the eu they're very slow to enter into these treaties so it's going to be a challenge for Prissy Patel.
0: It's going to be a challenge, um, absolutely. No, I do agree with that. It's going to be a challenge. The alternative, of course, is that you just tow boats back to Boulogne and, and Calais harbours, and that may get the French to the negotiating table a little bit more
1: quickly. That's been discussed. And, you, you know, it, what will happen is, what if the French then tow them back? So what you'll have is boat people going backwards and forwards, being towed to and fro. I don't think that's the way we want to... Be shown in the international community. I think
0: we're worth more than that. All right, Ivan, thank you very much indeed. Well, Ivan Samson and no. I often disagree on these things, but we do so, I think, in a civilized way. And, and and I, you know, repeat the point, certainly on foreign criminals. If you've been welcomed into this country and you and you have committed serious crimes that mean more than twelve months in prison, I think you forfeited your rights. Now moving on to a different story and something that is going to become incredibly difficult. And that's the position that the care homes, the care home bosses, find themselves in. Because government regulations come into force fully in November, insisting, as I understand it, that those that work in care homes are double jabbed. And yet, those that are running care homes have received letters from the Workers' Union of England saying that the requirement to vaccinate is invalid and that managers of care homes may be liable for the criminal offence of intimidation in the workplace. And it seems to me that those that are running our care homes are now piggy in the middle and in a very difficult position. Let's find out more. Joining me now is clinical lead at St Cecilia's Care Home in Scarborough, Simon Walls Simon, good evening and welcome to GB News.
2: Good evening, Nigel. Thanks for having me.
0: Is my analysis right? Are you caught in the middle here between a trade union saying, you know, that you may well uh, be doing something that could be deemed to be criminal in a court of law and a government insisting under their regulations that people are double-jabbed. And as I understand it, 40,000 care home staff who don't want to have the vaccine.
2: Yeah, and that's on top of already a, a failing industry that's struggling to recruit enough people to carry on, Nigel. I know within our group, I was speaking to the director tonight, and he said that there was uh, four members of, of our group um, that won't be having the vaccine, so we have to either try to find them somewhere that's away from the front lines, so to speak, to offer them an alternative, or the only other alternative we've got from the government's point of view is that we have to get rid of them.
0: Yeah, and so if we, let's just say that we were to lose 40,000 people from the care home industry at this moment in time. What would the implications of that be?
2: Oh, it'd be drastic, Nigel. Absolutely drastic. I think already we're seeing that there's closures in in homes around the country, in nursing homes, in residential homes. It will end up where social care will have no places left for anyone to be able to go to, which increases the pressure on the NHS and the hospitals.
0: And what's your feeling, Simon? I mean, you know, people who've had the double jab... Can still, of course, contract Covid. Can still, of course, spread Covid. Now, we, you know, I'm convinced by the fact that if they've had the vaccination, they're much less likely to get seriously ill. But presumably the government brought in this regulation, which, as I say, kicks in in mid-November. Presumably they brought it in on the basis that those that hadn't had the jab were more likely to spread the virus. So how do you feel about your staff? that don't want to have the vaccine. Do you think it's right that government is trying to force them to have a double jab?
2: I think we live in a democratic country um, and I think everybody has the right to choice. I think what we've done as a company is try to talk to people about why it's important for them to have the jab, about the people that we look after, that were people we're trying to protect. My feeling is that I'd like everybody to get the jab, but they should have that choice. Um, From what we've seen, what we've gone through in the last 12, 18 months um, within care homes across the country, we're still getting people in now that are COVID positive from hospital. Um, We're looking after them on a a designated unit. Can
0: can I just stop you for a moment there?
2: You
3: can, Nigel, yeah.
0: Are you telling me that the disaster that occurred last year, which was COVID positive patients being emptied out, of NHS wards and sent back to care homes, which cost many thousands of unnecessary deaths. You're telling me that's still going on.
2: What I'm saying, Nigel, is it's slightly changed, and it's pre-planned. So they have block-booked a certain amount of beds, which have to be on a separated area, which is run by segregated staff, so we have designated staff just for that area. Yeah. Um, and that's an arrangement through the NHS Trust, our local trust, and I think there's a few around the country as well that are doing it for people that are literally in hospital while they're recovering from Covid um, that don't need any further medical attention. But we have had people that have come in that have later died within those 28 days.
0: And how do you feel about the way the NHS has interacted with care homes all the way through this?
2: I think we, we've all tried our hardest, Nigel. It has been the most horrific two years. I don't think anybody has known really how to deal with any of it. Um, the government were f- probably worse because they didn't help much at all. It was kind of a let's clap your hands and, and say thanks to everybody and sing happy birthday twice and whatever else it was. Yeah. When we didn't, we knew it was coming. We knew we had to do something and something should have been put in place a lot earlier. And we, the, the The issue at first was that we were getting people coming out of hospital that weren't tested. Um, Those people that then came out later tested positive, and by that time, because they couldn't be segregated, there was that spread. We've had positive people now for probably the last four months, and none of our own residents have since caught Covid.
0: Well, that's at least some good news. And finally, can I ask you, when, when you get a letter from the Workers' Union of England saying that You know, if you do get rid of staff because they've not been vaccinated, that you could face uh, some form of criminal prosecution. Do you take that threat seriously?
2: Yeah, we don't want to get rid of anybody, Nigel. Um, If we could keep people, we can. But lots of care homes, lots of residential homes, nursing homes around the country do not have somewhere that you would not consider on the front line or somewhere where they could actually cause issues with other people contracting Covid from them. People can still catch Covid and can still spread it when they've had the jab. They just don't get the the, the serious amount of, of things that they had before. But obviously, in ideally, we'd like everybody to get the jab, but it should be people's choice. No, and I agree
0: with that sentiment 100%. I thank you for coming on and joining us, and I thank commend you. you. commend you for what you're doing in a very, very tough business. Very tough indeed. In a moment... My what the Farage moment will be. The government wants us to go even greener with E10 petrol, green petrol. It sounds fantastic until you discover that some cars simply can't use it. As we learn that not one of the 12,500 people that has come across the English Channel this year in small dinghies has been returned, I'm asking you, has Pretty Patel failed? And Pav responds to me on GB Views and says, yes, Pretty Patel has failed us and needs to go. Robert from Bister tells us, not just the Home Secretary at fault, we have tried to deport, but too many last-minute judges stopping the flights, and this is all because of the Human Rights Act, I promise you. Cynthia says, I like Pretty Patel, so do I. But sadly, she talks the talk, but there is no action. Repeatedly since August 2019, she's told us she'll stop the numbers coming across the channel and all they do is get bigger and bigger. And strangely, the more money we give to France, the more people they seem to send us. William has also sent in his view, he says, I believe the civil service and border force are equally to blame. No minister has ever got on top of the migrant flows in the last 20 years at least. That may be true on the big picture, but as far as the English Channel's concerned, this is actually a very new phenomenon. It didn't begin until three years ago, and it is now getting completely out of control. Now, my what the Farage moment. We're told that the government, which we know has got a big commitment to going green, um, is going to go that little bit greener by introducing... Extra amounts of biofuels into petrol. It's going to be new green petrol. It's going to be E10 petrol, is what it will say at the pumps. And Grant Shapps, the transport minister, has boasted that it would reduce the CO2 emissions coming from millions of cars. But I understand there might be a problem that this may not be compatible with some cars. So joining me now to discuss this is the president of the Automobile Association, Edmund King. Good evening, Edmund.
4: Good evening, Nigel.
0: So tell us, I mean, we know that going green always sounds wonderful in theory, but in practice it can be expensive or difficult. What does this new E10 initiative actually mean?
4: Yeah, so E10, it is unleaded fuel. Currently we have E5. So this is doubling the amount of bioethanol And by doubling the amount of bioethanol, it reduces carbon emissions from vehicles. It's estimated something like three hundred and fifty, sorry, 750,000 tonnes per year, which could be equivalent of taking 350,000 vehicles off the road. So it is cleaner, it is greener. The majority of petrol, cars and vans can use E10, so something like 95%. But there are some older cars, classic cars, older motorcycles, and indeed lawnmowers, where E10 is much more corrosive if it's left in the tank. So it can corrode some of the pipes and things, particularly if it's left for a long period. Now. This doesn't necessarily mean all those people have to change because many classic car owners currently use super unleaded, which is E5, and they'll be able to continue to get super unleaded. So they should be okay. It's more the cars around 2000, 2005, 2006, who currently would be able to use E5, will have to use E10, and E10 – and sorry – who won't be able to use E10 will have to use super-unleaded, which costs about 10p a litre more than regular unleaded.
0: how will they find out? Is this when, after the corrosion's happened, after they've broken down?
4: Yeah, well, there has been quite a campaign about it. Many of the garages now have got leaflets that they're giving out. Some of the oil companies have contacted customers. Certainly at the AA, we've been talking to our members about it. And there is a ready reckoner. You put in your registration number and it will say if your okay. car is compatible. So, you know, it, it is progress. They've had it in France since 2009, in the United States since 2012. So it, it does work.
0: OK, so actually this is not something that you're wholly opposed to. It actually makes sense, does it?
4: Yeah, no, ab- absolutely. I mean, it, it is progress. Um, and it, it will only be a few people affected. But ironically, the people most affected probably will be people with older lawnmowers and things because oh dear, if, you, if you put the fuel in that, yeah, and then you leave it in your shed for a while, and then it can have an effect in disintegrating parts. So, again, unfortunately, most lawnmowers may have to go on super unloaded.
0: Right. I'm going to remember that, Edmund, next time I top up and the grass is growing pretty quickly at the moment. Thank you very much indeed for joining us. Well, that didn't sound too bad after all, did it? Well, i tell you what is bad. So we've learned overnight that not only are we talking to the Taliban, as I said, over the course of the last two nights, we would be. Uh, but in fact, this has gone to a very, very high level. Uh, boss of MI6 over in a neutral country, talking to the Taliban. And I I did accept last night that we we probably have to to talk to the Taliban, but what we mustn't do is to somehow pretend that they're now the good guys. We've seen some really rather bizarre comments, I thought, from a chief of the Imperial General Staff suggesting that they're just country boys uh, with slightly different values to ours. Be in no doubt, this group of people loathe us, despise us. And we saw... Some evidence of this last night uh, in Afghanistan where the Taliban were parading coffins draped in the UK, US, NATO and even one there with the French flag. This was their big Independence Day celebration and I think that symbolism says one hell of a lot. Mock funerals. Mock funerals for countries including us. And there are many, many boasts coming out, many boasts coming out from Taliban sources saying that Bagram airport will now be used as a base to spread global jihad. So I suppose if the British government has to talk to these people, well, then that's what it will do. But the thought we would somehow ally with them because ISIS are even worse, I have to say, doesn't appeal to me at all. Now, last night I said to you that I'd probably go. I have to go off air at 7.45 as the president, the 46th president of the USA, Joe Biden, was going to give his speech on the end of 20 years in Afghanistan. But Sleepy Joe didn't actually come out to speak for another 45 minutes. He did then give a speech, a very, very long speech, um, in which he was wholly unapologetic, for his actions. Uh, The blame lies with everybody else and not him. But I will say this for him. That speech was delivered without the bumbling, without the stumbling. It was, I didn't like the content, but it was for this American president who's been struggling so much, it was actually a much more in control performance. Not that I agree with anything that he's done and certainly internationally, uh, his reputation and I think in many ways America's has been pretty shredded over the last week uh, and indeed on Monday, next Monday, I'll be doing an hour-long special to asking, does the special relationship still survive what has happened over the course of the last couple of weeks? Now, a case that will baffle many people is the Colin Pitchfork case. This is the man He was given a life sentence in 1998 for a double murder. Two 15-year-old girls, Linda Mann and Dawn Ashworth, raped and murdered by this man. Uh, The case received huge publicity back in 1988, not just because of its appalling nature, but because it was the first time ever that DNA evidence had been used to secure the conviction. But life in this country, of course just doesn't mean life. And this man is now back on our streets. Does that make sense? Has he been redeemed? Or is it, or does it make a mockery of the term life sentence? Well, joining me now is former prisoner and editor-in-chief of Inside Time, a national newspaper for people in prison, Erwin James. Erwin, good evening.
3: Good evening, Nigel.
0: Hi. Erwin, can you understand why the vast majority of people... Uh, who see this are appalled by the idea that Pitchfork is out, albeit I know, you know, he's got to wear a tag, uh, there are some strict conditions on his internet use, etc. But can you understand why, for a lot of folk, they think he committed these beastly crimes, he was convicted of them, given a life sentence, why is he, age 61, given freedom?
3: Well, the process in our, in our system, Nigel, is that people do get out. I mean, life does mean life, actually. It doesn't mean life incarcerated, but, it, but, it, but you're a prisoner of the state for 99 years. So he's got a 99-year sentence. There are 14,000 people in our prisons at the moment serving 99-year sentences, indeterminate sentences. And the fact is our system is set up to try and do its best, to rehabilitate people, to to get people to address the, the reasons for their offending, whatever it is, you know, and get them back out functioning well again. Now, this particular case is, is such a high profile case. It's a, it's a difficult case. I think the parole board have been very courageous to make the decision they've made because the MOJ is against the decision. The public yes. family, the victims' families, of course, absolutely, everybody's against it. They're not this person in prison. You know, he was sentenced by a judge. He served more time than the judge recommended that he should serve. He's for him for for some for someone in his position to get out for, to to have been in that situation to, and to actually be considered really. He's they the system has been through him with the finest finest blue no question about it. Because life doesn't mean life if you're not performing in the prison when you when you you know convicted of the worst crimes. If you're not performing in a way that indicates that you you really are. You know, ashamed, remorseful, and believe me, Nigel, there's a lot of remorse in our prisons. Whatever people, whatever the public think about our prisons, and I'm not a spokesman for prisoners or criminals, but there's a hell of a lot of re- remorse, regret, and shame in our jails. Should 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 this particular person be let out? I mean, there's there's other people who've committed equally equally horrific crimes who've been let out but haven't attracted the, the public attention, the media attention, simply because. You know, this was a particularly high profile. The DNA was a high profile case. No, I get that. and I understand that. But I
0: I, I just wonder, you know, I mean, the mind of somebody that wants to commit those acts on, on, on children, basically, you know, can that person genuinely be redeemed? I don't know the answer to that question.
3: Do you? I don't know the answer to that question. I, I don't know that. What I do know is that the system is geared to, you know, p- people who serving life and, you know, the most violent and sexual offences. They, they they're really they're really looked into by the psychology departments, the probation service, and occasionally, occasionally it goes wrong. You know, occasionally it goes wrong. Um, you, you know, well, what do we what do? do, you, do we, but if, what do you say? How? how,
0: how, how, how what do you say it goes how, wrong? What do you say it goes wrong? You mean that somebody who's been convicted of some heinous crime like murder
3: comes out of prison and does it again it's happened it's, it's a very, yes. very it's a very i mean it's it's an infinitesimal the, the 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 percentage of that happening but it, it, it can happen but that's what do we do do we do we keep everyone in just in case somebody reoffends and does a terrible thing again you know do, do we build fortress prisons have you know mass incarceration we we already have massive overcrowding in our prisons we we have an an amazing workforce in our prisons decent people trying to address the 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 damage that the, the people in prison have done. They're they trying to do their best, but they, our prisons don't have the public support. They, they really don't. They just, they just, you know, a lot of people don't think about prisons. My my view is a prison is a valuable community resource, as valuable as a school or a hospital. And and it's about, you know, we need, as a society, we need to start having a bit more respect for our prisons, have prisons that, that we can be proud of instead of ones that we're constantly ashamed of. And a decision like this really... It attracts, you know, it attracts the worst attention from, Mm. certainly from the victim's families, you know, I mean, grief, the pain that they're feeling is, uh, is, uh, it's inquantifiable how they must feel about this, but our system is set up to, to rehabilitate, you know, I mean, we have become more punitive over the past sort of 10, 15, 20 years. If you back to the 80s, we had two really high-profile cases. Both prisons are dead, so I don't mind naming them. But, yeah. but the Yorkshire Ripper, Mr. Sutcliffe, he he was committed a dozen or more murders. He was given a minimum recommendation of 25 years by the judge because that was considered then a huge and incredible sentence for this country. Dennis Nilsson, another, another yeah. uh, person, serial killer. Again, 25-year minimum term. IRA bombers who'd killed you know, several people in bombs. We're getting minimum 30 years. Uh, now, you know, this chap has, has served 32 years and it's not long enough. You know, we have kids getting caught in, 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 in gang oh. violence in London, shootings, and they're getting min- they're getting minimum terms of 35 years, well, 40 I, years, yeah. 27 years. Well,
0: whatever the rights and wrongs are, Owen, I think that's what the public wants. But look, thank you for coming on and making the point that prison is You're there to rehabilitate and, to re- and, and for people to find redemption. Thank you. Now, our snap poll on Twitter, whether Pretty Patel has failed, and 61% of you say, yes, she has failed. Um, well, I, I honestly think uh, I'm surprised the number wasn't a bit higher. Um, 18% saying no, and the rest perhaps not decided. Now, car- cartoons. I love cartoons. We're good at cartoons as a country, and one of the themes I've been running over the last couple of weeks is the problem in getting face-to-face GP appointments. You may have heard me talking about it and interviewing people. Well, today, on the front page of a Telegraph, there was the Mac cartoon, which so often is brilliant, and if anyone can't quite see it, it's a couple of guys meeting at a party. Hello, I don't think we've met before. You must be my GP. I like that. Talking of having fun, I'm going to be joined by, without doubt, the most famous pantomime dame in the whole of the world. Yep, I'll be talking pints with Christopher Biggins. Before I begin talking pints, remember, at the end of the show we have Barrage the Farage. Questions that you send in that I try to answer without having seen them first, so please keep sending those in but Before that it's a great pleasure to welcome Christopher biggins to talking pints Christopher great to see you
5: great to see You Nigel, and I raise a glass to you.
0: Cheers. I raise a glass to you. You've got no ice in that
5: No, it's a pretty naff pub if you ask me <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, you, they, they got the vodka in anyway, yeah, but the ice is something which is very important yeah, I, know, I know I know I know I put ice in uh, Rosie. Wine, because I like it really, really cold. Chilled, yeah. No, yeah. well, we'll... we'll um, somebody will get fired, as a <laughs> I fire. hope so. No,
0: actually, GB News, so short-staffed, we dare not fire anybody <laughs> at the moment, because we're a start-up, and that's fun, and that's yeah. exciting. And it's... Christopher, you have... You've been in some of the best-known sitcoms, some of those classic sitcoms... I know, very 70s. lucky. You know, wonderful programmes... I mean, porridge and... We just did a big sketch, a big big piece on prisons a moment ago. Yeah, I, I saw that. I thought of you in HM Prisons. Yes. State
5: and all And, you know, when we were in there, it was a wonderful series to make, but when we were in there, none of us quite knew what we were in there for. We knew it wasn't very serious because cause we were all rather likeable. <laughs> you know, and I was a gay character and I played a gay character before in A Doctor at Sea and I'd gone right over the top. And this time we would like blonde wig and very fe- effeminate and got criti- criticised for it. So this time we thought we'd be a bit more subtle. And what I did do, uh, not that all gay men I know knit, but I knitted, except, of course... Um, The diver, Tom Daly. Tom Daly's just started. Yes, I I certainly
0: thought of that. There could be a knitting (laughs) (laughs) craze. But you did these big shows. You went into Panto and of course, you became very famous as you know, Widow Twanky, and all those things that you did, and then on to "I'm a Celebrity," which you win, and you know, you're one of the most famous faces in the country. But when you first got into acting, because the people I've spoken to that have tried to make it as actors and have found it. A poverty stricken existence, um, you know, just trying to survive from gig to gig, uh, constantly going to auditions. Was it tough to get into, or did you just sail straight into it?
5: No, in my day, uh, bearing in mind I'm much older than most people now, it is the fact that it was easy. Because what we had, we had a series of repertory companies which you could go to. Like when I, I lived in Salisbury, when I was brought up in Salisbury. Yeah. And when I left school at 16 and a half years old, I went to the local rep and to a man called Mr Salzburg. And I said, can I have... Um, I'm now burping this Coke, uh, this uh, <laughs> tonic's making me burp. Uh, I said, can I have a job? And he said, yes, you can. And he said, well, he said, I, don't, you know, well you, I know, we're doing this play. You, you can come for two weeks. And I stayed for two years. And I was on £2 a week for the first year, went yep. up to £6 a week the second year, and I came out a fully-fledged uh, uh, ASM, assistant stage manager, and then I went to drama school. So that was... It, but that was everywhere so in the country. There a, so there was a route open? There was a route open, and yeah. that... A lot of people... I mean, you know, there were wonderfully successful actors. Stephanie Cole was in Salisbury Rep when I was starting off, and she suggested I go to Bristol Old Vic Theatre School. I mean, it was so much easier then, and you could go along... And television was... You know, they wanted young, cheap, cheap that was this essence. Yeah. And they wanted those people. Nowadays, there's nowhere for actors to go and trade at all. And what was the big break? What was the break to the big time? Well, I suppose uh, when I was at Salisbury Rep, I met a lot of people, like a man called David Wood, who writes children's uh, t- t- um, plays. And he wrote a play called The Owl and the Pussycat Went to See, S-double-E dot, 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 dot. And I, uh, he remembered me. And when he was doing this production in the West End, he asked me to play Head Jumbly. And so that's what I did. I played Head Jumbly, which was fantastic. So I went to the West End uh, as soon as I finished drama school, and it was brilliant. Uh, Those sort of opportunities don't happen anymore. Interesting. Now,
0: one thing I did notice uh, that we have in common is that you did once play Herod, um, and I was sort of deemed to be Herod (laughs) politically a few years ago. So I thought we may have that in common. But you always appear... Publicly, You always have been, and we've met before, but you always appear to be a naturally very jolly,
5: optimistic person. I am, and I think that somehow is w- how we all should be, if we could only be that, because, you know, it's tough. You know, it's not easy, the life we lead, and we certainly had two years, 18 months misery. of misery. I mean, I liked the first lockdown. I don't know about you, but it was great fun finding out that your house that you lived in had nice things in it, you know, which you don't n- notice normally. The second one was unbelievably boring, of course, and we've all... and the first one, the weather was incredible. I know, it was lovely.
0: I mean, you could sit outside. Yes. I mean, apart from those stuck-in-high-rise blocks with children and dogs, and you can't imagine how miserable... No, no, it was. It must have been for them, but... But but, I
5: I feel it's much better to be optimistic, you know, much more positive. And, you know, I've always been like that. I mean, it's always something that I've loved. And you... I mean,
0: I think of the acting profession in this country, entertainers. I look across to Hollywood, I mean, goodness gracious me, and they appear to be, whether it's Benedict Cumberbatch in this country or whoever it is, they appear to be the most woke, uh, cancel culture. Um, I think Hugh Grant thought that, oh, I've met Hugh, perfectly nice to meet him face to face, but I think Hugh thought that, that with Brexit, we were going back into sort of the dark ages. Um, what is it about the vast majority of this profession who seem to be way out there on this liberal left um, and, and, and think that the rest of us would benefit greatly <laughs> from knowing what their opinions are?
5: Yeah, I think it's ego, if mm-hmm. you ask me. I think they have a, such an ego. And nearly all the people that you've just explained, you know, with with uh, these uh, extraordinary ideas of how we should all react and how we should work the system is is to do with ego and it's not as though acting is enough of an ego for them they want to actually personalize it to make sure that people know that they are very lefty and that's how everybody should be and an actor who's right-wing is is a disaster which of course is rubbish but, but you've always been...
0: Well, you've not necessarily promoted it actively, but you've always been on the Conservative oh, side. Oh, absolutely. And absolutely. you've never shied away when, when you're asked the question about it.
5: No, no, never. I mean, it's, it's like my sexuality. I've never shied away from that. Uh, I think it's important to know that you are part of a party. I mean, there are times... Uh, recently, that I gladly go out and take Boris and shoot him because he's made so many mistakes. Because I don't think he he, he... he doesn't listen. And he treats us like idiots. That's what I, I is feel. Is he really a conservative? It's is interesting, that, isn't it? I, I don't know. He could be something else, an alien. <laughs> <laughs> well, I don't know about that. And, can, and dare I ask you, dare I ask
0: you, I and mean, you don't have to answer this because it could be career-ruining... Yes. Um, but what about Brexit? How did you feel about Brexit?
5: Well, I I was uh, for Brexit. I have to say. <gasps> I know, I know. That's <laughs> a, that's for Brexit. He'll never work again. <laughs> and I, you know, I've got lots of friends I- in businesses who have suffered badly. Uh, but I don't. don't they? Yeah, but the, what they say they have. I don't know whether they've suffered as much as they tell us they've suffered. We had to get out of, of, of Europe. I mean, they were taking us for a ride. And they're still taking us for a ride. They're, they're saying, you've been a very naughty country for leaving. Now you're going to have to pay even more. Because a lot of people were just earning money off us.
0: Oh, look, I worked over there for 20... Yes. I, I was, in a way, I was one of them. But, 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 but what I saw, I mean, just the, the sheer largesse of yeah. Brussels, yeah. Of, of everything that was provided, of uh, the best careers. Yeah. Um, I think there were 10,000... When I left, there were 10,000 people working in Brussels as bureaucrats, who weren't more than the British Prime Minister. <laughs> 10,000 of them, you know. And it was a very cushy, easy life, and no wonder they liked it and wanted it, of and, course. And wanted it to go on. Who because, wouldn't? Because that's what human beings do. And, and, and is Brexit now the chance for us? And, OK, you, you know, Boris, you've said you're not happy with some of his decisions, but are we going to get our confidence back as a country as a result of
5: well, it? Well, I do hope so, because I do think we're a very, very confident country. I think we've bred some wonderful people... Uh, wonderful um, actors, wonderful uh, politicians, uh, marvellous uh, people who've invented things, inventors, so many wonderful things, film actors. I mean, it's great. What well, This country is a great Britain, is a great country. No, we, mustn't, we mustn't forget
0: that. No, 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 you're a true believer, I can tell that. You know. And you say great actors. Who's the best actor that
5: you've worked with? Well, I, I have to say, um, and I think this might upset you, who you have just mentioned a few minutes ago. Uh, Hugh Grant. Hugh Grant. Do
0: you know something? Do you, know, he... something? Do you know something? When that, when that play was on, the, the, the three-part drama, the Jeremy Thorpe oh, drama... unbelievable. And I watched it, and I remember the case. And, of course, Thorpe yeah. himself was an extraordinary character. Yes. I mean, went from being just about the most popular politician in the country yeah. uh, to where he finished up.
5: But I thought Hugh Grant's portrayal of that was absolutely stunning. It was superb. I mean, he's a brilliant, brilliant actor. I mean, he's a great friend of mine. And I'm not just saying that because he is a friend, because he's a, he's, a, he's a very amusing man. But he was brilliant. And also, he was very good in the Paddington films. Yeah. He was funny. I mean, he can be funny. He can be serious. He could be lots of things. I, mean, I think in the early days of his career, he was a bit of a joke, because he was doing all those things with pretty girls and things. And, but quite successfully. But very successfully, absolutely. And he's made a lot of money. I think through his brother, if I'm right. His brother's invested a lot of money for him, so I think he's, you know, very uh, comfortable. Yeah. He needs to be. He's got so many children. <laughs> <laughs> he keeps having them, doesn't he? But you've done pretty well, too. Yeah, it's been, it's been good. I mean, it really has been good. I've, I've enjoyed my career. I mean, when people say to me, what is the highlight of your career? And, you know, I, Claudius, where... I, I mean, I really believe that Nero... I was Nero. And I believe I was Nero in a previous life because it was so... Oh, yeah, I do. Because he fits so nicely on my shoulders. And everything he did, I believed in. And he was a wonderful, wonderful character. Even though he was hideous. God, I mean, they, he had one or two unattractive characteristics. He did. Have you been to the British Museum to see the
0: exhibition? No, I haven't. Is it You've worth going? You must go. It's fantastic. And I think George Osborne's now running the British Museum. Yes,
5: I think he is. He does rather put me off, I yeah.
0: don't. <laughs> <laughs> I, will, I will overlook
5: that. He's I'm another brilliant. one, though. I, I, we went to Russia together, and uh, he's a very nice man underneath it all. You see, these people really are nice underneath it all. I think... Well, a lot of people are,
0: yeah. and I think... They you know, act being horrible. You know, one of the things I want to do with this show here on GB News is to make sure we get both sides of an argument, and if you saw the guests I had on earlier, they were taking different positions to me, but yeah. then we examine those debates and we let the audience at home make course, up their own minds. Of course, of um, But there's something about civilised debate and democracy that's gone horribly wrong in the last few years. Yeah, you know, I
5: think people are frightened of it, you see, that's the thing. They don't know, you know, Woke has created a whole generation of people who don't know what to say. And if they say it, they think they're going to be, you know, locked away, put into some sort of dungeon or something, yeah. you know. I, I remember as a kid in the playground, you know, you'd say something
0: and someone wouldn't like it. you say, well, it's a free country, I can say what I like. Yeah. Now youngsters say... <gasps> you can't say that.
5: I know, and I think that's such a shame... I really do. It is a remarkable turnaround. Because, you know, you should be able to say what you think. I mean, this is, your, you know, your, your life. This is your moment. Yeah. And if you're c- constantly being told, you oh, can't say that, then what must what, you what go on in your
0: mind? One of, the that, one of the reasons that the celebrity TV programmes, like I'm a Celebrity, one of the reasons they work is because the cameras are on you for such a long period of time that at the end of the day, you can't act. No. The real person. Absolutely right. The real person comes out, and that, that I think, for the viewer, is one of the fascinations. What's she really like? What's he really like? Did you
5: actually enjoy doing it? I loved every moment of it. Did you really? uh, Honestly. the, the, The first moment I went in and I was confronted by Janice Dickinson, the awful American... Uh, model who was the most hideous woman I've ever met in my life. And I still say that to this day. Uh, she was vile. And we, it was down to the two of us at the end who was going to win. And she was convinced she was going to win, as was I. And there's a the picture of, uh, on the on this television of the two of us there. And when they announced the king of the jungle, I didn't, I didn't hear that. I mean, I, I, I wanted to applaud her. But she was, Absolutely horrible, but everyone else was wonderful, and I loved it. And the marvellous thing about it is that it's the highlight of my career. And I say that because, and I've done some wonderful things in my career, because it was voted in by the public. They saw something in me that made them want to make me the king. And that was what was so wonderful. Yes, I mean, as you
0: say, it, it wasn't a sort of theatre critic or no. somebody else deciding. Exactly,
5: or, or a or producer, judging, or, you know. Judging, no. yeah. Judging, yeah. So you've retired from Panto. Well, I I, I haven't retired. I'm I'm going to go... uh, Last year, I was going to go to Dartford to do Jack and the Beanstalk uh, to play uh, the the dame in that, which was a lovely dame. And, of course, we were brought off because of Covid. And, uh, I mean, Covid in theatre terms has just been a disaster. Yeah. A disaster for everybody. Yeah. Producers, directors, actors. I mean, I know an actress who is a very well-known actress, West End, playing leading roles, mm. had to go out and, and uh, because she had two children, her husband, had to go out during the day and drive a van in order to bring back money. She yeah. came home to have, cook the dinner, and then her husband took the same van and went through the night. Yeah, tough. And tough. Let's hope and pray some normality is coming back. Well, I hope so. I mean, I hope so. The trouble is, we just don't know. That's the problem. No, we don't. I mean, you know, and we won't know. And I I think it will always be with us, but but I think... But then in life, we never know, do we? No, we know.
0: that's, That's true. But I think maybe... Maybe the Christopher Biggins approach to all of this, which is to be optimistic and to be jolly, is the way we get through bad things in life and enjoy good things that little bit more... That was Christopher Biggins <laughs> on Talking Pints.
5: Thank you. Thank you, Nigel.
0: Right, now it is time for the last part of the show, Barrage the Farage, and you've been sending in your questions, which, as you know, I don't get a previous look at, and one day I'm going to trip over horrendously. <laughs> but it hasn't quite happened yet. Linda says, how do you think pandemic restrictions for travel and Afghanistan have affected UK and US relations. Can we have another hour, please, for the programme? (laughs) Because I couldn't... Look, I think what Biden has done uh, has really damaged the relationship between us and the USA. I'll be doing an hour-long special on Monday with some very senior figures on both sides of the Atlantic examining, is the damage... Is it a severe bruise or is it actually a break? Um, I suspect... That actually our links with America, our cultural links with America, our linguistic links with America, our business links with America, our historical links with America, because they have now forgiven us for 1812. I suspect that our great relationship with the states will survive Joe Biden, but the next three and a half years could be very, very difficult. Mark on Twitter asks, if you could invite three people from world history to a dinner party, who would they be? Well, it would obviously have to be Churchill, there's no question about that because you could sit into the wee hours with a cigar and a glass of something and talk about all sorts of things. And I'm going to have to say, uh, I'll pick one other. Um, I never really got to know Margaret Thatcher, um, and I was fascinated by her, because there's a fan over here. But whether you liked Margaret or didn't like Margaret, uh, she had conviction, she had belief, and I would love to sit and talk to her about what really formed her views. And I have had dinner with the Donald a few times over in America. And again, a completely fascinating human being, whether you like him or not. I've got time for one more. Alan asks, Nigel, should we call a general election? Who do the people trust? (laughs) Well, look, look, do you know something after... Do you remember um, Brenda from Bristol... When she was told there was an election coming. Yes. And she said, oh no, not another one. And I think the British public would respond very negatively, indeed, to another general election.